circles. So you've got three theses. Everybody say theses. Okay, not theses, theses. <laughs> the plural of thesis. All right? You did not talk about theses at church. It's theses. So anyway, statements. You have three statements. And it's like it's difficult to believe all three of them at once. And, and it seems like you can only believe two. So here are the three statements. Number one, God is good. How many of you believe that? Yeah. Number two, God is all-powerful. How many believe that? All right, but number three, evil exists in the world. Now, how can, how can all these three statements be true at the same time? Well, uh, all theodicies attempt to explain them by basically emphasizing two of those statements and then providing a nuanced explanation of the other one. So, for example, if you believe the first two, that God is good and God is all-powerful, and you really emphasize those two points, and you say God is good and God is all-powerful such that God is controlling everything, then you have to provide an explanation of how then there can be evil. And you do that usually by calling into question whether or not evil actually exists in the way that we think about it, or the way which would technically be called gratuitous evil. So everybody say gratuitous evil. Gratuitous. Right, I'm going to define a lot of terms. This is an introductory message. If you don't get all the stuff I'm talking about today, it's fine. I'm just trying to give you an overall picture of where we're going. And then we're going to go slow and we're going to go through everything. But gratuitous evil is evil that serves no redemptive purpose. How many of you remember The Dark Knight with Christian Bale? Okay, that was a good movie. But anyway, so in it, in it the, what's the butler's name, Batman's butler? Alfred. Alfred says, some men just want to watch the world burn. That's an example of gratuitous evil. The Joker isn't trying to further some plan. He just wants to watch the world burn. He's just evil for the sake of being evil. Okay? Uh, one way to construct a theodicy is to question whether or not gratuitous evil exists. So this is what a guy named Alexander Pope did. He was my favorite poet. Uh, or He still is my favorite poet. He was a four-foot, six-inch, 18th-century British poet. And he wrote really impressive uh, thinking poetry. It used to not, poetry used to not just be about like flowers and like love and all this. It was, a, it was a, the way people argued stuff. So imagine trying to write a, you know, a philosophical paper, but every, everything you said had to be written in heroic couplets. So every line had to be ten, ten syllab, uh, syllab, syllables. <laughs> Syllabuses. No, every line had to be ten syllables, and it rhymed A, A, B, B, C, C, D, D. Imagine trying to write something like that. And so he wrote this poem called Essay on Man, and he argued in this poem that all partial evil is universal good. What he meant by that is, and he explained it further, is that everything that we think is evil, we just don't understand what's actually happening and the evil is touching some wheel, it's moving some object, it's doing something, it's all part of the plan. And God is using the evil in order to further His divine plan. 
And so the way they get, he, he got around the problem of evil is basically to call into question whether or not there actually is evil. He's saying, well, it just seems evil because you don't know what the purpose is. And you could use an example for it, like we, we took our daughter to go get shots. And so she doesn't understand shots. I mean, she's 19 months old. All she knows is that a needle's getting stuck in her leg and it hurts. To her, that seems like an evil situation, but from our perspective, it's furthering some good, right? So that's one way. So, so uh, that's one way to construct a theodicy, and we'll explain what that model's called later. Other people will uh, accept premise two and three. They believe that God is all powerful, and that God is, uh, and that there is real evil. There's gratuitous evil, and so that means that you have to. You have to qualify what good means. And you have, to, you have to really call into question whether or not God is good in the sense of God only wants good things for you because he might actually will some evil. All right? Or there's a third option, and this is the route we're going to go, which is where you accept that God is good and you accept that there is evil in the world, but then you provide a nuanced definition of what it means to be all-powerful. And I'll explain that more later. But again, because of all this, so just looking at that, I mean, do you see how that's a difficult problem? And there's a variety of options there, and, and there's only a few, I mean, there's only a few options. And these are the same options that have existed since Aristotle and Plato and, and then Paul and Jesus and all these things. So I'm not going to say anything new to you in the sense of a new argument, but I'm hoping to explain it in a way that makes sense. Um, so, uh, again, because of the difficulty, many people have just given up on the problem and either become agnostic or atheists. I will tell you this. If somebody argues and says, well, I don't think there's a God because of all the evil, it's difficult to believe that there's actual evil if there's no God. To suppose that there's real evil means that there's an objective standard of good. Does that make sense to you? If, if there is no God, then, then goodness is a, it's a moral construct that only exists because it's an expedient to keep us from killing each other while we evolve from lower life forms to, to whatever. But it's not actually evil for me to kill Josh. That's, I mean, that's moral relativism. That's, that's how you have to go if you're going to be an atheist. But most people don't actually believe that. People believe, well, it's objectively evil for me to kill somebody. How many of you believe it's objectively evil? Even in a vacuum, even on planet murder where everybody murders everybody, it would still be objectively evil to kill somebody, even if it's socially acceptable. It's socially acceptable in this country to kill babies. How many of you understand that? But we still believe it's objectively evil. Okay. The fact that you believe in an objective evil presupposes that there's a God. Because there's got to be an objective lawgiver. There's got to be an objective morality. Where, where does that morality come from? Well, it comes from God. So if you say there's no God because there's evil, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Because why do you believe that there's evil? All right, that's a good argument, but anyway... Number two, it should be pointed out that there can be a bit of implied pride in trying to answer this problem. 
so, you know, the word theodicy means to try to justify God and justify the goodness and character of God in light of the evil. Well, in one hand, I mean, first of all, God's God. He doesn't really need me to justify Him. But as long as we understand that and as long as we approach this humbly, God likes it if we ask questions. And the Bible actually says in Proverbs 25, verse 2, that it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. There's something about asking hard questions and praying for revelation and seeking out answers that identifies with our royal lineage. Slaves don't get to ask their masters hard questions. Is that true? But my kids, my, my kids will question my morality. Anybody had a kid do that? I mean, they'll, they'll ask you hard questions about my motivations. Why are you doing that, Dad? And you know what? I'll answer them. Because they, ha- they, they can ask me this stuff because, because they're my kids. So I want you to understand that, that we're not trying to be in pride or something as we do this, but we're trying to ask real hard questions and come up with a, a solution that fits with the Scripture and that fits with, with what we experience in life. All right? So, is anybody confused yet? Everybody's okay? So there's been a whole bunch that's been written and discussed about this stuff, and it can be kind of overwhelming. But all theodicies tend to fall into three categories, depending on which of those two earlier points you emphasize. Okay? So I'm going to tell you what three categories there are, and then you'll have a big picture of where we're going. So the first one's called limited theism. Everybody say limited theism. We won't talk about this one very much because it's not really a a Christian model. But this model suggests that God basically is limited and that He has necessary metaphysical constraints which limit His ability to stop evil from happening. Okay, so an example of this would be dualism. Dualism is the belief that there is an eternal good and an eternal bad and sometimes these are gods, sometimes they're just like the Force, like in Star Wars. Anybody like Star Wars? Star Wars has a dualistic theology. There's the light side and the dark side. Why is there evil? Because the light side and the dark side are equal. Opposite forces. Okay, and they're locked in a perpetual battle with one another. So some people believe that God is locked in a perpetual battle with evil and that He cannot finally overcome it. And that's called dualism. Now, we don't believe that as Christians because we believe God's going to win in the end and heaven's going to come to earth and there's going to be no more tears, no more suffering, etc. Right? So uh, that's that's one type of limited theism. Another type would be process theology, which I might explain later, but it's pretty complicated. Um, Pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that God created the world out of Himself. So everything's God. Everything's God. So if... If, uh, you know, I think, I'll explain this later, but I don't think God initially created the earth where animals ate each other. Which does seem to suggest that there's something evil about the fact, I mean, if you've ever watched, like, insects, like, eat each other, you ever watch that? I mean, it looks evil. I mean, they got their, their talons, you know, and they're like, they're, I mean, I don't know what, 
I don't know the technical term, but I mean, spiders creep me out, man. And they're like, they're like, you know, injecting poison into, I mean, into the fly and all that. I mean, it's, it's awful to, to watch that. So if God created these spiders with these, you know, whatever those things are, fangs, then, then in pantheism, that spider's God. It's a piece of God. So why does evil exist? Well, because there's something inherently evil in, in God. It may not be his whole being, but there's a part of God that's evil. Okay, so we don't really believe in limited theism. That's stuff that's outside of Christianity, so we aren't going to really spend much time talking about that. Within Christianity, there tends to be this giant argument between what is usually called the blueprint model and what's often called the warfare model. So the blueprint model is kind of what Alexander Pope taught, and it suggests that evil exists to further a higher purpose. Now, there's, there's different variations of this, but God either causes or just allows evil for reasons like perfecting our character. So in some models, they believe that, that God is specifically causing every single bad thing to happen. In other models, they'll say, well, he's not the cause, but he allows it. But functionally, these end up being the same because what they suggest is that God could stop every single evil event from happening if he wanted to. Therefore, hear me, in the blueprint model, this is what it all boils down to. God must have a specific, positive reason, redemptive reason, for allowing each specific instance of evil. Not evil in general, but every instance. So, if you go out of here and you get in a car wreck, it's because God allowed it, and God must have a redemptive purpose for it. Because He could have stopped it. That's what the blueprint model teaches. The trouble with that is, and as I'll argue later, is is it's really hard to argue that. Because there are all kinds of really horrifically evil things that happen on the planet that, that, frankly, it's very hard to see how they could be redemptive at all. I mean, not to be too negative, but I mean, there's, there's children being abducted and, and uh, you know, suffering horrible things and then being murdered and then nobody hears about them. And, and you know, it's very difficult for me to see how anything like that could further some positive uh, thing or be, be part of the plan. All right, so the third option is what's called the warfare model. And I'll show you as we go through some church history that prior to Augustine, the warfare model was, the, it was what everybody believed. And so what the warfare model says is that evil exists because of evil wills, plural, both human and suprahuman, people beyond, so like angels and demons. And so the warfare model, it, it hinges on the belief that free will is, is real and that there are various agents, there are humans and there are demons that work autonomously from God and they are actively seeking to thwart His will. 
And so God created these beings, but in doing so, He placed voluntary metaphysical constraints on His own power in order for them to have real freedom. Okay, what this means is, I'm going to argue throughout the course of this series that God cannot stop each individual occurrence of evil from happening. That He actually is incapable of doing it. Now, you might say, well, pastor, how is that any different from limited theism? The difference is, in limited theism, those constraints are necessary, meaning meaning it wasn't voluntary on God's part. What I'm going to argue is that God created a world where people had real freedom, and that as a result of that, God did this voluntarily. He could have created a different kind of world. But he chose to create the kind of world we live in because it makes love possible, which I'll show in a minute. And and therefore, he is restrained from stopping each individual occurrence of evil. He can and does stop some because of various factors, which we'll try to explain. But I believe he does the most he can in every circumstance to avoid any evil from happening. I believe that evil is never the will of God and that suffering is not the will of God, and that God is good all the time. Okay, so the benefit of this view is that it allows us to uphold God's goodness even though evil is present. We don't have to attribute the evil to God. This matters a lot to me. I don't don't believe that the Bible teaches that God is the author of suffering and that He's causing terrible things to happen to people. I don't believe that God is mysteriously behind the abduction, abduction of murder of children. I don't believe God is mysteriously behind sickness and and all these kinds of things. I believe these are evils that have come into the world for various reasons that we'll explain. Okay, so I'm going to argue that that the Bible strongly depicts God as supremely good and that it also argues for the existence of gratuitous evil, that there is just evil that's senseless. Mm -hmm. And that's scary to think about. But I believe it's actually less scary than believing that God wills all the evil. And that the answer to the problem lies in our understanding of what it means to be all-powerful. So I'm going to give you up front, because this is so complex, I'm going to give you up front what the argument is. Everybody ready? I'm going to go through it, and you might be like, I didn't catch all that. That's fine, I'm going to go through it in the next few weeks here. But here's the basic line of reasoning. God is an all-powerful, all-good being who created free agents, both humans and angels, for the purpose of experiencing His divine love. How many of you believe that God is love? God's a triune love. He's a a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He's been complete in love inside Himself from all eternity. It makes sense then that if God's going to create beings that he does so because he wants them to experience the same kind of love that he himself has experienced. How many of you experienced just a little bit of God's love? I know you've only experienced a little bit, because if you experienced the whole thing, you'd be dead. But all of you, hopefully, have experienced a little bit of God's love. If you've experienced that, you've experienced some of your purpose for existing. Okay? But He not only wants to love you, but He wants you to be able to love Him back. 
Point number two, and this is a big one, love must be freely chosen in order to have any meaning. Love only exists in the context of choice. My choice to love Molly only, intuitively know this, it only means something because I have the ability not to. Is that right? Anybody remember that old show, Stepford Wives? Nobody remembers that. A couple people do. There have been like a couple versions, right? And so in Stepford Wives, actually I've never seen it, I just know the premise. So if I'm butchering it, I'm sorry. But I think the premise is that, that the, you'd move to, the, this guy like moves, this couple moves to this suburb and it's, it's like all the wives there, like, they're like super wives or something. You know, they always look good and they always bring your slippers and they always do all this nice stuff for you. And uh, in one of the versions, they like swap them out for robots or something. But I think in the other version, what they do is they, they take like a chip and they'll put it in your wife's brain, and then all of a sudden she'll just do everything you want her to do. And everything will be perfect. And, you know, the, the point of that movie, I think, I, I haven't watched it, but my assumption is that even though the guy does this, that at the end he realizes, you know what, this might be fun for a little bit, but it's not real. It's not real. And therefore, it's not satisfying. Love only exists in the context of real choice. A lot of married couples out there. The fact that you that you're chose the person you're with, that means something. You could have chosen to be with somebody else. Is that right? And so, freedom is a prerequisite for love to have any meaning. Everybody cool with that point? So point number three, these all build on one another. Freedom, once it is granted, must be irrevocable, meaning you can't take it away, within the given parameters in order to have meaning. What's that mean? Let's pretend for a minute that I gave you $50, and I said, use this however you want. How many of you would rejoice? All right. If I gave you $50 and I say, use this however you want, and then you go to the candy store and you're about to buy like 10 pounds of jelly beans, and I run up to you and I say, stop, you can't spend my $50 on jelly beans. You've got to do something healthy with it. And I stop you. Listen, if I did that, did you have real control Real freedom over that $50? No. The freedom's not real. In order for freedom to be real, I cannot take it back once I have given it to you. If I cede control over the $50 to you, I have to, st I have to stick with that. And therefore, there is risk. This is a big deal. There is risk involved in me doing that. And I'm going to argue that God is a God who risks. <laughs> Einstein said God doesn't play dice. He's wrong. And the, and the science actually proves it. I'll, I'll show you later. So I believe that God gave people real freedom 
And then point number four, freedom in love entails the ability to influence agents and creation, not just, do you know that you, how many of you know you can affect the creation, not just other people? Anybody ever dug a hole? All right, you affected the creation. It's really quiet in here. Anyway, (laughs) I think this is super interesting. But anyway, all right. Freedom and love entail the ability to influence others and creation for better or for worse, and that the the two have to be roughly equal. So if... So let, let's pr- pretend for a moment that I've got a, a $1,000. How many of you know I could spend that on something good or I could spend it on something bad? It's, it's basically the same with, which way I go, right? Because the amount of money is the same. So depending on how much freedom I've got, that influences how much I can affect the world positively or negatively. Why is it that some people are so evil and have influenced the world so terribly? I want to suggest to you that the opposite was possible, that they could have influenced the world just as much in the other direction, and that they were granted a a powerful measure of freedom, which was irrevocable, and then they chose to use that freedom in a terrible way. And there are various things that condition the amount of freedom that we have, and we'll kind of try to dive into some of that. Um, But I want to make this point. How many of you believe in unconditional love? All right. Unconditional love is it's defined as like love that I, d- I decide I'm going to love you. And if it's unconditional, it means you can't do anything to change it. So we could say this. It's, it's love for no reason rooted in you, at least. Right? If that exists, I believe it presupposes that gratuitous evil has to exist. Because if I can choose to love you for basically no reason, I also have to be able to choose to harm you basically for no reason. There are two sides of the same coin. A world that allows for real love also allows for real evil. It's a metaphysical necessity. <laughs> if you don't believe me, just wait. We'll get there. We'll explain all this. <laughs> the latter is the condition of the former. And then number five, free agents have chosen to use their God-given freedom in ways that are contrary to God's will, thereby introducing evil into the cosmos. So I'm going to, in, usually when people talk about this stuff, they categorize evil into two categories, moral evil and natural evil. Moral evil is like if, if a person does something evil to you. Natural evil, moral evil usually is pretty easy to explain if you believe in free will. It's like, why did so, why did so and so shoot this other person? Well, because they could. They made an evil choice. Natural evil is harder to deal with because that's the question of why is there an earthquake? or Why did this tornado you know, take out this house and not this other house? Or why are there all these diseases and, and all these kinds of things? What I believe, and I'm going to try to argue, 
is that all those things, even, even natural evil, exists because of evil wills. Not human wills, but superhuman wills. You'll remember Jesus rebuked the storm. Who was he talking to? That's a good tease. All right. <laughs> uh, so anyway, these evil people and evil angels or whatever, angelic beings, actually it's better to probably call them gods because that's what the Bible does. Um, they chose evil and therefore they introduced evil into cosmos. And then because of one through four, God cannot simply force these agents to stop due to the nature of the universe he voluntarily chose to create. So God chose to make the world this way, and I believe it was the only way he could make a world where love was possible. I believe love is the goal. And I also believe that in the end, God's going to win. And I believe God's at war with all these evil wills. And he's been at war, and I believe he's winning. But he's not going to have full victory until what we would call the eschaton, or the, when Jesus comes back. So we're not dualists, and dualists believe that it's just always going to be this battle. There's yin and yang and whatever. No, there's not. God's going to win, and he's going to wipe away every tear. But in the meantime, we're in a war zone. How many of you have ever looked outside, and, and you thought it looked like war out there? I mean, you looked at some people. I mean, I'm a pastor. I mean, I've talked to people's lives. I mean, do you know why the world looks like a war zone? Because it is one. Now, I know that's not initially as comforting, maybe, as believing that just everything that's going on is somehow part of the plan. But I, I think in big picture, I'm far more comforted by the fact that God is good and He's always good and He doesn't will all this evil and that He's going to win. And moreover, this causes me to engage in the battle. James 4, 7 says, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. There's some things you're supposed to submit to because they come from God. There's other things you're supposed to resist. I mean, I think abortion is an evil that we have to actively resist and fight against. If the blueprint model is true, then that means that every, every aborted baby is the will of God. I reject that. So I'm not mad at people that believe that, but I don't think that's true. I think that impugns the character of God. And so God has to wage a real war against this evil, all right? And he's going to win. Everybody say amen. So if you didn't follow all of that, don't stress about it. That's the point of this series. So next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start to explain the fact that the Bible does show that God is at war. And that that's the, the clearest motif, really, in the Bible. And I'm going to show you... I understood Job, I thought, pretty, pretty good, but I was missing a piece of the puzzle. And if you go back and read Job 41, 42, it talks about how there's God's fighting this thing called the Leviathan. I always thought that was a whale. It's not. So come back next week and I'll tell you what it is. All right, let's all stand up.
I'm going to pray for everybody. If my prayer team could come down here. I hope you're all blessed. God loves you. Whatever model you subscribe to, we want you to know Jesus loves you. We love you. We're not mad at anybody. I'm just trying to help us think through this stuff. So anyway, I'm going to pray for everybody. If you need personal prayer in just a second, you can come down and pray with one of my prayer ministers. Father, we just love you. We thank you that you're a good God and that you only want good. And we just uh, release your wisdom and your love and your mercy into your people. And we thank you for showing them truth about who you are and what you want for them. And Lord, we just receive every good thing that you have in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys are awesome. Thanks for humoring me. It'll get more intense from here, but there'll be less terms. So we got through all the terms. So anyway, have a great week. If you need personal prayer, come down. If you want to meet Molly and I, we'll be right down front.